Talk 570 WTBN Pinellas Park. Online at letstalkfaith.com. A service of the Salem Media Group. Portions of this hour have been pre-recorded for broadcast at this time. Odyssey. The following program was pre-recorded for broadcast at this time. Up next is Verse by Verse, sponsored by Verse by Verse Ministries. Jesus is the sole head and Lord of the church. The church belongs to him. It does not belong to a pastor. It does not belong to a board of elders. It does not belong to the people who make up the congregation. It's not the people's church. It is Christ's church. And why does it belong to him? Because he purchased it. He purchased it. He purchased it, in fact, with his own life. And today on Verse by Verse, we'll be considering not only Jesus' ownership, but his leadership of the church. I'm glad you could be with us today. Pastor Steve Kreloff is our teacher, and he's been the teaching pastor since 1981 at Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. I'll have more about Lakeside and Pastor Steve at the conclusion of our study. One of my good friends was recently telling about the time he spent as an assistant to a mortician. He observed that the mortician did some things to the bodies that my friend said he wouldn't describe because they would sound so gruesome. Let's just say that some of those actions would bring a strong response from a living person. But what did the dead bodies do? Absolutely nothing. They were incapable of responding to anything done to them. And that's a perfect description of my spiritual condition and yours before Christ brought us to life and salvation. The Apostle Paul said in Colossians 2.13, When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him. And in Ephesians 2.4, Paul said that God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. Over and over in Scripture, we see that explanation for the mystery hidden behind our own change of heart that leads us to trust in Christ. Here's Pastor Steve now to tell us how one of the most effective preachers in history understood his own transformation. But today, I want us to hear Spurgeon on the subject of how he, Charles Spurgeon, came to understand how he became a Christian. Listen to this. Nobody spoke and wrote like Spurgeon. That's why his, his words are just magnificent. He said this, When I was coming to Christ, I thought I was doing it all myself. And though I sought the Lord earnestly, I had no thought that the Lord was seeking me. I do not think the young convert is at first aware of this. I can recall the very day and hour when I first received those truths in my own soul, when they were, as John Bunyan says, burnt into my heart as with a hot iron. And I can recollect how I felt that I had grown on a sudden from a babe into a man, that I had made progress in scriptural knowledge through having found once and for all the clue to the truth of God. He writes, one night, one week night, when I was sitting in the house of God, I was not thinking much about the preacher's sermon, for I did not believe it. Just disregard that part here as applying. <laughs> but probably it was very true in Spurgeon's case. He writes, the thought struck me. How did you come to be a Christian? I sought the Lord. But how did you come to seek the Lord? The truth flashed across my mind in a moment. I should not have sought him unless there had been some previous influence in my mind to make me seek him. I prayed, thought I, but then I asked myself, how came I to pray? I was induced to pray by reading the scriptures. 
How came I to read the scriptures? I did read them, but what led me to do so? Then, in a moment, I saw that God was at the bottom of it all and that he was the author of my faith. And so the whole doctrine of grace opened up to me, and from that doctrine I have not departed to this day. And I desire to make this my constant confession. I ascribe my change wholly to God. End of quote. Now, I hope that you can see and say the same thing about your salvation that Charles Spurgeon said about his, that your salvation is ascribed totally to God and not to you making the right decision to trust Christ. See, this, this is not simply an abstract academic issue that has little bearing on your daily life. Folks, this is the heart. This is the heart of your daily life. Let me explain. This is critical. That's why I'm stressing this. That's why I always stress this, and by, and by God's grace, will always stress this, because what you believe about the sovereignty of God determines what you think about God himself. That's why it's ridiculous when pastors and churches say, it's so controversial, we won't deal with it. Who gave you the right to not deal with the truth of God? You see, your understanding of how Christ builds his church, whether he sovereignly does it or whether you think that you had a decisive hand in it, will determine, as I said, your view of God. Those who ascribe their salvation totally to the Lord, like Spurgeon did, can help, note this, can help but be in awe of God and his grace. And as a result of of this high view of God's sovereignty, they constantly praise him. They constantly thank him. They constantly worship him, adore him for their salvation because they know they owe everything to him. They understand how utterly dead and lost and hostile they once were and incapable of coming to Christ on their own. And so they stand in awe of Jesus Christ who, as Paul said, loved me and gave himself for me. More than that, regenerated them, granted them repentance and faith and everything. You know what our part was in salvation? We were running as fast as we could away from him and his part as he went after us and captured us. But those Christians who think that they're saved because they have the capability of making the right choice and coming to Christ, they tend to become very man-centered. Very man-centered, not only in their theology, but their whole outlook on life. It's all about them. I mean, that's one reason why the church in America is in the condition it's in. It's a man-centered church. It's all about them. When you say, we're not going to address the sovereignty of God, this is the result. You are making a statement. It's called, man is far too important. So instead of praising God, they often think too highly of themselves because they credit their salvation to their keen insight and understanding of spiritual matters. But I want you to to look at Ephesians chapter 1. In Ephesians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul lays out for us the fact that we were chosen in him before the foundation of the world. But I want to show you something else. He says in verse 4, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. 
And then notice what the result is. Notice, notice where this ought to lead you. Notice what the purpose is. Notice the results that ought to show up in your life when you grasp this. Verse 6, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. When you understand, without understanding totally God's sovereignty, human responsibility, none of us understands that. But when you grasp that your salvation is totally of the Lord, then you're going to praise him. You're going to praise the glory of his grace. That's what Paul said. You're not going to praise yourself. You're not going to boast about yourself. You're going to boast about Christ. Notice verse 12. To the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. We're going to praise him. We're going to glorify him. Verse 14. Who is given, he's speaking of the Holy Spirit, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession. What should happen? To the praise of his glory. Three times in this run-on sentence, and in the Greek it is actually one sentence, one very long sentence from verse 3 to verse 14. The Apostle Paul says three times, it is to the praise of his glory. So it's very important that we understand that when Jesus told Peter back in Matthew 16 that he would build his church, our Lord was revealing himself as the sovereign builder of the church. However, I want you to notice something else about this statement of his to Peter concerning the church. Observe carefully how Jesus referred to the church. Notice, folks, what did he call it? He called it his church, not simply the church, but his church. Look at it again. He said, I will build my church. Now, we touched upon this, this truth, but just very briefly mentioning the fact that this means that Jesus is the sole head and Lord of the church. The church belongs to him. It does not belong to a pastor. It does not belong to a board of elders. It does not belong to the people who make up the congregation. It's not the people's church. It is Christ's church. And why does it belong to him? Because he purchased it. He purchased it. Acts 20, 28, where Paul says he purchased it with his blood. When Jesus died on the cross, not only was he paying for your sins, he was purchasing you as well. Purchasing you. You've been redeemed. You've been purchased from the marketplace of sin. That's why the New Testament writers so often referred to themselves as slaves. That's what it means. Bond servants, slaves, because they have a master. The master is the Lord Jesus himself. It's true that, that we're part of his family, but it is also true that he is our master. He's our father. Christ is our master. And the Apostle Paul, in rebuking the very carnal Corinthians for their sexual immorality in 1 Corinthians 6, boldly told them, you're not your own. You're not your own, for you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God, he said, in your body. In other words, he's telling them they have no right to do whatever they want to do with their bodies. They don't rule over their bodies. They're Christians, and they now have another Lord ruling over their bodies, and that Lord is Jesus Christ, and he commands them. He commands them to abstain from immorality and instead to glorify God with their bodies. Now, in light of this great truth that Jesus not only builds his church, but he's Lord over his church, I want to begin 
And we can only begin it today to explore a very important and critical issue. And it's this. How does Jesus Christ rule over his church? That's to say, if the church belongs to him and he is its Lord and ruler, then practically speaking, how does he govern his church? How does he reign over his people? How does he direct them? How does he lead them in the paths of righteousness? And I'm going to tell you the answer up front so you don't have to think I have to wait till the end of the sermon to get this. No, here's the answer. The biblical answer to this is that Christ rules and reigns over his church through godly leaders in various local churches who instruct his people to follow and obey him. How? By following and obeying the word of God. Let me say it again. Christ rules and reigns over his church through godly leaders in various local churches who instruct his people to follow and obey him by following and obeying the word of God. In other words, he reigns over the church through godly leaders who teach the scriptures. I want us to just begin, because we're not going to be able to complete this, begin to see the pattern that, that emerges from the New Testament concerning the way that Jesus rules and governs a local church through its leaders. Now, you may not think this is important, but I want you to know it is critically important. When a church doesn't get it right about leadership, it affects the congregation because the congregation will never be, never be deeper and more godly than those who lead them. Those who lead them not only teach the word of God, they are to live out the truths of scripture. What a church does with its government is essential. This is a critical part of scripture. It will determine so much in the life of a church. Now, first of all, when we talk about church government, we need to be very clear that we are talking about what the New Testament presents as the biblical pattern, and there is a biblical pattern. We are not talking about the way that you may have seen it done in other churches. I realize that many have come to Lakeside from various churches with various kinds of church government. One of the more curious things about evangelical churches is that although we may say that all of our beliefs and our practices are based upon the Bible, yet interestingly enough, when it comes to choosing a type of church government, many churches often completely ignore what the Bible has to say, and they choose their government based on the country that they're in. Much of what we do in church government in American churches is based on corporate America, business America, practical stuff, rather than biblical information. For example, some churches are run by an executive council, or they may have some other name, but they are essentially an executive council made up of certain influential church members. You don't find anything like that in the Bible. There's nothing like that, that individual church members with clout in the church, maybe they've been there longer than anybody else, maybe they have some financial status, maybe their grandfather uh, founded the church, they're on this church council, and all the other boards are subservient to them. You don't find that in the New Testament. You don't find that anywhere in Scripture. Other churches, and this is a popular approach, are governed by a senior pastor, a head pastor, and then there are a board of deacons 
who work with him and they run the church. They might uh, also have a, another group called trustees who handle the finances and so forth. But you know what? It may be a popular way to do things in the American church, but there is no example of this type of church government mentioned anywhere in the New Testament. None whatsoever. Still other churches are part of a larger denomination. And their ruling body consists of either a single corporate type of denominational leader, uh, perhaps called uh, a bishop, or a council of astute leaders. But in either case, regardless of whether it's a one-man bishop or a synod or something like that, when you're part of a denomination, those who govern you as a church body make decisions that affect you, they're outside of your local church. It's some other group doing that, and that's completely foreign to Scripture. Since in Scripture, every church mentioned the New Testament was self-governing. Now, they were in submission to the apostles, but there's nothing like that that continues today. A, a synod or a bishop is not an apostle. In fact, I'm, I'm reading a biography of John Murray, who I believe for many years was a uh, systematic theology professor at Westminster Seminary. And uh, John Murray was, in his younger years, uh, a part of a church that had a denomination. It's very interesting. There was a conflict he had with that church, and the denomination actually dictated to him, you either abide by this or you're out of the church. So you have a denomination telling a local church what to do. That, that's foreign to the Bible. And in addition to the types of church government we've already noted, there are many Many churches, especially in our culture, who believe that the church should be run purely by a democratic vote so that the power to lead the church lies in the hands of the congregation. Although this is a very popular form of church government because it's based on democracy and we love our democracy, it's completely contrary to the teaching of the Bible. Congregational rule is not taught in the Bible, nor is dictatorship, I might add. The Bible says that those who lead need to be sensitive and loving to the congregation. They're not to lord it over them. But nor does it say that the congregation is to make the final decision, not a democracy. Now, these various approaches to church government have been embraced by many local churches, as I said, especially by American Christians. And you may have come from a church that practiced one of these approaches. You may have even been a church officer serving in a position of leadership in one of these types of government churches. But I want you to know, as I've said before, let me reiterate it, not one of these approaches to church government is taught in the Bible. Nor is there any specific church mentioned in the book of Acts or in the New Testament letters that had a government resembling any of these just discussed. It's just not there. So what is there? When we look at the various local churches that are presented either in the book of Acts or in the New Testament letters, we find a definite pattern that emerges about church leadership, which tells us how Christ is building his church. It's a pattern that teaches us how Christ designed the church to be ruled. And the pattern is this. Christ rules his church through a plurality, which means more than one, of godly men who teach his people the word of God. It's really not that complicated. Sometimes these men, and here's what, 
what people perceive as a complicated mess, but it's not. Sometimes these men are referred to as elders. Other times they're called shepherds, which means pastors. It's the same word. Sometimes they're even known as overseers, which is the exact word for bishops. But understand this. Each of these titles given to a church leader is simply a different name for the same leadership position. They are not three different positions. For example, and let me show you this, and I want you to know this is important. There was a generation in the early days of my ministry at Lakeside that was very well versed in this. This was very dear to my heart. In fact, I almost lost my ministry over this. That's how serious this was. Because when I started teaching about plurality of elders, there were many at Lakeside who, who were opposed to it. And I heard things like, well, too many chefs in the kitchen. Um, you, you just don't get work done. You know the problem with that? And these are silly analogies. Um, nobody is saying we're chefs, that elders are chefs in the kitchen. There, there is only one chef, the Lord Jesus Christ, but you need plenty of waiters. And that's why you don't have one waiter. You have plenty of waiters. That's, that's what leaders are. They're waiters who give out the food from the chef. But I heard things like that. This was so dear to me and so important that, that believe me, it almost cost me my ministry. It did cost me friends, but this is something that we built into the fabric of Lakeside, and I want you as this new generation of people who have never really been exposed to this, I want you to understand this, because this is what our church believes, and we believe it with all of our hearts, because the Bible teaches this. It is important. For example, I'd like you to look in Acts chapter 20. This is the concept of plurality of elders, plurality meaning more than one. Now, sometimes people say, well, how many elders do you need in a church? Well, the Bible never says how many. It just means more than one. It just says plurality, multiple elders, a team, a pastoral team of leaders. In a larger church, you'd have more. In a smaller church, you'd have less. Scripture doesn't say, doesn't give us a number. For the sake of the health of our local congregation, and especially for the spiritual welfare of each person in that local body, It is critically important that we get this concept that the position of elder is not an administrative or governing position. It is a call to serve. Yes, shepherds guide their flocks, but they spend a lot more energy caring for them than steering them. For example, in the church I attend, we have four men elected to the position of elder. But in order to be eligible for that position, they must already be elders in the way they live their lives. So we have several other men who are also considered elders because of their maturity and their God-given desire to mingle with the other sheep and help them in any way they can. Thanks for tuning in. You've been listening to Verse by Verse, featuring the expository preaching of Pastor Steve Kreloff of Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. Lakeside, if you ever want to visit, is at 1893 Sunset Point Road. You can find out more at lakesidechapel.com. And if you live nearby and are looking for a school for your children, Lakeside operates a fine school where your child will find both a solid academic atmosphere and be exposed to a biblical worldview. Lakeside Christian School is accredited by the Association of Christian Schools International and the Southern Association of Colleges and Schools. Learn more at lakesidechristianschool.org. 
Since I have a little extra time today, I should remind you that Pastor Steve also has a passion for helping the blind, and he's asked me to let you know about a special opportunity for our listening friends who have digital talking book players from the Library Service for the Blind. If you want a free audio Bible for your digital player, call 800-838-5924 or visit blindbibles.com. That's 800-838-5924. This is Jerry Peterson. I recently read a wonderful book about church leadership called They Smell Like Sheep by Dr. Lynn Anderson. He describes elders this way. First and foremost, elders are shepherds. And what is a shepherd? A shepherd is someone who has a flock. Shepherds in the Bible days were not day laborers who showed up for work in the morning at a stranger's pasture, put in eight hours, and then went back home. Rather, shepherds lived with the sheep, day and night, year after year. Shepherds helped birth the lambs. They led their sheep to pasture during the day and protected them at night. The sheep knew their shepherd's touch, recognized his voice, and followed no other shepherd. There was a genuine relationship between the shepherd and the sheep, In fact, through long time and frequent touch, the shepherds smelled like the sheep. The Bible uses three different terms to describe church leaders. Elder, overseer,